Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Last night's Toronto Blue Jays game was stupid. The Jays lose five to four. No shortage of issue to take with how that one played out. If you missed it, good for you. Turn the radio off for the next two hours. Pretend it didn't happen. Rejoin us at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Uh, If you didn't miss it, imagine you're already filling the text line at 590-590 or you were filling the ears of Blair and Barker on Jay's talk last night. This ranks among the most frustrating losses of the Blue Jays season. The leverage of this situation is a big part of why the Toronto Blue Jays are running out of time to get their stuff together and they are decidedly not getting their stuff together. They're now looking at a situation today where they may need to salvage just a series win against Washington. And yeah, Washington came in to this series hot 11 and four over the last 15, the third best team in the national league since the all-star break. Uh, Look at this roster, look at who has pitched and how they've pitched the last two games. Look at how early and how deep the Jays have gotten into Washington's bullpen and tell me the blue Jays should have only won one of these two games. So the leverage of this, the quality of competition of this, the not being able to get to pitchers early of this, or at least take advantage in the case of Josiah Gray, when you do chase him from the game, those things are all frustrating. And then the specifics of how this one played out late are particularly frustrating. We're going to talk to Keegan Matheson and Ben Wagner about those uh, a little later. We're going to talk to Ben Clemens of fan graphs around 1130. Uh, If you saw on social media or you heard on the broadcast last night, a whole bunch of players around baseball got waived last night. Why is that? What is the incentive for teams like the angels? How does the waiver process work? Could the blue Jays be involved on any of these guys? We'll do all that with Ben Clemens later. We'll touch on it a bit with Ben Wagner and Keegan Matheson too. And a special guest coming up at 1035. Arden and I talked about this the other day. He threw out the first pitch on the weekend and got to know Yusei Kikuchi and Arden a little bit. Mitchell Hooper, Literally the world's strongest man, the first Canadian to be named world's strongest man to win that competition. Also just the fourth person ever to double that up with the Arnold Classic in the same year. He's going to join us around 1035. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about his baseball fandom, the fact that he played baseball before, how that transitions into strongman. But also he is a, he has a human kinetics degree and a master of clinical exercise physiology. Uh, The Blue Jays have some interesting injuries right now. We've also talked about guys like Alec Manoa and Yusei Kikuchi and what their offseason season plans could look like with certain goals in mind. So we'll pick Mitchell's brain on that as well. Right now though, to dissect a mess of a game from last night, we go to the world's second strongest man. And I say this because at this point in the blue Jay season, he's still a man who will occasionally check his Twitter mentions has to make a minimum top five strongest man on the planet. It's Keegan Matheson of MLB.com of bluejays.com. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. Yeah, it's built up a lot of sandpaper, Blake. I, uh, the, uh, the mentions were popping. I think my favorite one was when I tweeted out that we'd be talking about the Blue Jays in the morning, and a couple of people just said, um, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> there was also the, uh, the request that we talk about the big decisions from last night's game and, and not do pleasantries, which, uh, yeah, uh, I, I hadn't planned to talk about uh, the game from last night otherwise. So uh, th- that, and I'm, I'm being glib. That person who tweeted that is a, a regular uh, <laughs> replier and listener, a very good, good guy. I like talking about just, just giving him a bit of a hard time because guess what? Even those of us who cover the team were at our wits end last night. Uh, you've had the benefit of a night of rest, possibly an alcoholic beverage. Keegan, uh, how has last night settled in with you as of this morning? 
still doesn't make sense. Nope. It's still a such a frustrating loss. We've seen losses where the Blue Jays played worse. They we've seen more underwhelming performances, but a loss like that where you so clearly had the opportunities, uh, both in the eighth inning with Kirk, whether or not they should pinch run, and then in the ninth where. You know, it's a little inside our job, Blake, but we have to have a story ready when the game ends. I had a full walk-off story ready, just ready to punch in the name, say who did what at the top, and it didn't happen. Bases loaded, nobody else. you think they would be able to do that, and it was so close. But, man, that is the exact type of loss, maybe top of my list loss, where if the Blue Jays fall a half game, one game short, you go back and say, woo. It is, yeah, it's got to be up there. I mean, we can go through them game by game if if we want. Uh, there are some real frustrating ones. You know, a no-hitter against the Tigers in a stretch where the offense was hot. That's kind of just one you just chuckle at a little bit. But this is one, especially given the leverage of this point of the season, and you can't control what other teams are doing. But worth noting that last night, Houston, Texas, Tampa Bay, Baltimore, they all won. Seattle lost to Oakland, but pretty much everyone around you uh, won as well. So you're now three and a half games back. Uh, if we want to do some numbers stuff, they were they had a per fan grass playoff odds, a 59.8% chance of making the playoffs on Friday morning. That is down to 38.8% today. That's how much damage they've done over the course of these two series here, going two and three against Cleveland and Washington. Uh, Keegan, you are the guest. So I am going to give you the choice. There is obviously a macro, a bigger thing to take from last night's game that we can discuss. And that is the lack of execution in the ninth inning. And I have some numbers for that. And I'm sure you have some feelings about how that played out there is also the pinch run thing which got a little bit more attention and more comments from john schneider post game where do you want to start minor or major you know people seem less happy about the minor the pinch running let's lean into the misery baby all right so this starts even before the game and we find out Bobachet is going on the il with a mild quad strain he's only expected to miss the minimum but the jays didn't want him to keep pushing it in and it turns into something bigger we're looking okay at the very high end you're probably not going to call up addison barger or relvis martinez to ride the bench and not play every day their development is too important Okay, you go a spot further down the list. Spencer Horwitz maybe would only be a glorified pinch hitter. You can get there with that. Then you're thinking, well, Nathan Lucas, you know, he can pinch run. He can play uh, defense in the outfield. The team has raved about his the quality of his at-bats in both the minors and when he's come up to the majors. Heck, even a Cam Eden is one of the best base runners in all of minor league baseball this year and is, to hear people in the organization tell it, the best defensive outfielder they have but even close to the majors right now. And all of this happens, and they instead go with Mason McCoy, who was the trade return for Trent Thornton when the Jays DFA'd Thornton and dealt him to the Mariners. Mason McCoy was not hitting at AAA, has not hit at a league average level since 2019 when he was a very overaged player at high A ball. The bat isn't everything. We're talking about a 26-man here. We're talking about triage situation. But, Keegan, even before we get to the usage and non-usage of the game, how perplexed were you by Mason McCoy being the guy who gets the call and also, by the way, needed a 40-man spot? Yeah, I was in the back of my Uber on the way to the ballpark, and I read the email several times is probably the best way to put it. It was uh, a bit surprising, but does kind of fall in line with a lot of the moves the Blue Jays have made outside of Davis Schneider, which is turning to a 
quote unquote more veteran or depth piece who probably isn't in a spot to get used all that much. Like we've seen with Lucas, like we saw with Luplo when he was up with the Blue Jays, they just don't use that last spot. And that is clearly impacting how they view the possibility of bringing up a prospect. So, of course, I get a lot of questions about Aralvis Martinez. I don't think he's quite ready to make that big jump right now. Addison Barger, a bit older, a bit more experienced. I could see that. But even when we get down, I like, like you mentioned someone like Eden. Spencer Horwitz is, is a guy I am so high on. He's reaching base almost half the time right now. <laughs> he is on a stupid tear. And I know he's the first baseman, and I know you have a couple. But given how the Blue Jays use this last guy on the roster, you're not bringing him up to start. So why not bring up someone who can do one specific thing? You mentioned Eden with base running with defense. That's a thing. Spencer Horwitz is a lefty bat who can put together a very good at bat, a guy who I think could be someday a high 300s on base hitter in the big leagues. That's a thing. That's a thing you can do. Addison Barger, Ralvis Martinez, power, a little power potential. And listen, David Schneider has spoiled everyone. <laughs> We are going to get reminded very soon, uh, whether it's next year or this year, the prospects don't always work. A couple of these guys we're talking about will break your heart and fall short of expectations. That's going to happen. But with Davis Schneider, we've also seen what happens when you chase a bit of upside. Sometimes it works. And I think the Blue Jays need to be embracing the unknown a little bit because the known has got them where? Three and a half games out of a wildcard spot. So I don't mean to pick on Mason McCoy, who, you know, I haven't got the chance to know yet. The org obviously saw something in him, but you know, the numbers are the numbers at a time when everyone is hitting in triple a, uh, he has a two thirty four batting average. A little bit of that is, or sorry, that was with, with Seattle. He's actually hitting one ninety two uh, with Buffalo with a sub 600 OPS in a year when the league average OPS in the international league is over 800, um, not a track record of hitting there. Now, the one thing you can get to, or the two things I, you can get to. So Keegan, you laid out the actual reason, which is, ah, they wanted someone who they're okay with not playing, which is, uh, I don't know, uh, a way to use the 26th spot, I suppose. Uh, the other things would be, well, we don't have our everyday shortstop. Ernie Clement's been awesome at AAA this year, but between him and Espinal, there are a lot of substitution scenarios where, hey, it'd be nice to have another guy who could play shortstop. The other thing is, I mentioned Cam Eden is a really, really good base runner. Well, McCoy is 23 for 25 stealing bases as well. Not quite as large a green light in part because he doesn't get on base as much, uh, but he's a guy who can run as well. So if you're playing out scenarios where, okay, Mason McCoy is certainly not going to start, but where might he have a use for this team? We yeah, to... late game stuff, I, I yeah. think, makes sense. And for a guy like McCoy, I should say, too, I'm thrilled for the guy. I, I love being around the clubhouse yesterday, seeing him run around. It's, he's trying to get a picture taken. <laughs> he's trying to find a belt, a bat for this picture. Seeing the smile on the face of a 28-year-old guy who's played six or seven minor league seasons, that's the good stuff right there. So good on him. And when those situations come up, Maybe a pinch running situation, which, <laughs> well, but when you see what the Blue Jays did yesterday, uh, John Schneider a lot calls it a line change or a shift change, which, um, which I like as a phrasing for this because teams are now actively viewing those opportunities as, okay, let's start Gavin Biggio at second or third, but we're going to do it with the understanding we're probably going to sub him out 
late in the game when the relievers come in and we get a matchup. You're already thinking ahead to that. So in those situations, let's say you are subbing out a Clement or an Espinal to pinch hit a Brandon Belt in a really opportune situation. Well, then you run back out Mason McCoy as the defensive replacement that next inning. That's probably what we're looking at. Um, Maybe some situations where you can avoid Kevin Biggio making his MLB debut at shortstop in his fifth MLB season uh, in a playoff race. That might be ideal. But late game situations playing that kind of a chess match, I think, changing lines. Certainly. And so we got into a couple scenarios where – at least in the game, I, 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 hey, I had got past that Mason McCoy was, to me, a bit of an odd choice to come up. And then we very quickly, and it, it, don't, don't get me wrong, I am aware that it, there is a dissonance here in this guy, in me saying this guy should not be on a major league roster, but also why wasn't he used in this very important spot in this very important game? There is an irony there that I am aware of. Uh, however, he got the call. He's on the roster. The two situations you just outlined where he could potentially be used both come up. Uh, the Jays in the eighth inning have runners on. Alejandro Kirk is on second. Eventually, he ends up on third, they decide not to pinch run. John Schneider's explanation after the game, Keegan, was that, well, it wasn't the tying run and it's not the final inning, so he decided not to use it there. Now, I kind of went through it with pencil and paper and I played out the uh, the scenarios that could have happened if they use McCoy in that spot. And the biggest cost was, well, you can't use him as defense later because Kirk's in the DH spot. But I also ran through those scenarios and I and in doing so, in, unless we're talking about the very, very odd scenarios where Seattle, or, um, you know, Washington puts up five runs and then the Jays have put up four, like the normal scenarios, Kirk's spot is not coming around in the order again unless things have gone very well for the Blue Jays. The, Jay, the game is still going, which is better than you have lost. And if you're looking at who they're going to pinch run for, at that point, we'd already assumed Brandon Belt wasn't available because he hadn't been used as a pinch hitter in a, in a few key spots. We found out after the fact that was true. There was maybe a small scenario where you'd pinch run for Vladimir Guerrero Jr., but you're not doing it with Danny Jansen because you've already established you don't want to lose the DH spot and, and Kirk's your only other catcher. So to me, it didn't, as I played through those scenarios even down to it didn't make a lot of sense not to use them there in part because if you get one run it's then easier to structure a ninth inning comeback and play for one run or play for two runs instead of a big inning etc um what did you make of schneider's explanation of that after the game where hey it wasn't on his bingo card and that wasn't the tying run yeah that's a really tough one and with kirk from the moment he reached second base And I'm a big believer in not rewriting history. It's easy to go back and say, this contract sucked, this trade sucked. What did you say at the time, right? And we were sitting in the press box, Richard Griffin to my left, and we were kind of pointing at each other. And I believe we asked each other, are we missing something here? Is there something? Let's double check with each other to make sure we're not off base. But saying it at the time, and certainly when he reached third base, why is he not being pinch run for? Because what if a ball is hit in the air? And it played out almost like it was scripted. You, or you could if it not was hit on scripted. the ground too, by the way, once he gets exactly. the third, right? Definitely. That's, that creates the exact same problem, unless you are breaking perfectly and get a really high chopper. So Schneider's comments after the game saying that his rule of thumb generally is that you pinch it for the tying run there. And like you said, Blake, he wanted to uh, keep Kirk around just in case. What if they get to the 11th, something crazy happens? you got to get to the 11th. Yep. You've got to get there for that to happen. And 
I understand the Blue Jays, like, like every team, uh, very process-based. They have these things mapped out. Uh, contingency plans, whichever other buzzwords I can throw out there. But there needs to be wiggle room, whether it's 1% or 5% wiggle room to read the room, I, I think, and, and see what that moment means based on who's on base there. Kirk is one of the slowest runners in Major League Baseball. We all know this. And that was a, what makes it so frustrating because it's something that I think some people saw coming and were saying ahead of time. This isn't just hindsight rewriting. It's something that people were watching and saying, what's going on? And then it happened exactly as people feared. So the other scenario that you had laid out where McCoy could maybe come into a game is as a defensive replacement. And look, part of this is that eighth inning ended in an inopportune spot to get a defensive replacement. And Varsho had just pinch hit for Clement and you don't, you need Varsho in the outfield. So you're going to have to do some sort of double switch here or make a move that has McCoy coming up early in the order in the ninth, which you want to avoid. So I I can kind of understand not using him as a defensive replacement there. But to me, the only explanation for not using him as a pinch runner was, well, we were going to use him as a defensive replacement. Um, So, I mean, Biggio played an inning of shortstop. I I don't think it would have been the end of the world. And I think one ball snuck through, but it was, they were heavily shifted anyway. Uh, Were you more okay with the no defensive replacement decision given where they were in the batting order? Or did that kind of cascade your confusion? Yeah, that one didn't bother me as much, I guess. Uh, still curious because, you know, why is Mason McCoy on the bench if you're not going to use him in a spot like that? Where is the spot, if not that? But at the end of the game, that's, uh, I guess, what John Schneider alluded to when he said it would look a little dirty, a little weird, a little crazy. And Kevin Biggio is a, a heady player. He's a guy that, my goodness, if you're three catchers down, Biggio's the guy I trust to throw on a helmet and figure it out. He's, he's very smart, and I trust him. But in the middle of a postseason race, having Kevin Biggio make his MLB shortstop debut, that's just not where you want to be. And it was a move that was almost necessary at that point, a, a very curious one. But just when you step back and really look at it, of how quickly things can change, Blake, going from – Bo Bichette at shortstop, Matt Chapman next to him to Kevin Biggio. MLB debut in a playoff race, not in a game that you're really grinding out, not in a quality game <laughs> against the Rays where you're moving around, but in a bad baseball game, let's call it what it is, against the Nationals. That's just not where you want to be. So all of that plays out. They don't opt to pinch run for Kirk or defense replace. Kirk gets thrown out at home on a, a Varsho sack fly. So we head to the ninth and it's 5-4 instead, or 5-3 rather, instead of potentially 5-4. Or who knows what else happens in that inning. But but probably they're going into the ninth at 5-4 instead of 5-3. They then do their job early on. Kevin Biggio, who has still in the game, he singles. Kevin Kiermaier singles. George Springer walks. You have the bases loaded and nobody out. Bottom of the ninth. You are down two runs. And yes, there are injuries changing who the personnel are here, but you have two, three, four in the order coming up. Now, Keegan, given how this season has gone offensively, I will tell you, I will tell you some numbers here that are devoid of context. They don't control for who is up and how those players have performed in big spots and how the team performed in big spots. But generally, if you have nobody out and it's the bottom of the ninth, you have an expected runs of 2.4, 2.4 runs. So you're, you're clear to win the game. And 61% of the time, you will tie or win. 
given that scenario, would you have felt, if I gave you those numbers at the time, would you have taken the over or under on 61% chance the Blue Jays come through there? You know what, Blake? I've watched a lot of Blue Jays baseball this year, so I think I would uh, touch the under there. <laughs> and I, I think that highlights – because realistically, if you have two, three, four on a borderline playoff team coming up in the order, you should feel way more confident than the sure. league average situation there. Um, and then, by the way, hey, here's a wild pitch that will score one for you. Here's a freebie yeah. on top of that. Look, Davis Schneider has done a lot for this team. He strikes out. What are you going to do? Vlad grounds out. It, it scores a run, but again, a slow rolling ground ball in a big spot for Vlad. And I know the season long numbers with Vlad in leverage situations are actually pretty good, but I, I think that one was, was something everyone was kind of waiting to groan. And then Danny Jansen, another guy who's been very good for you, but, but pops out there, um, man, what do you make of it? Again, Schneider, Vlad Jansen is not the two, three, four you anticipated for this team, but it's still two, three, four bases loaded. Nobody out against a pitcher who doesn't have his command, even though he's had a, a decent enough season as a closer there in Finnegan, the command's not there, man. I, we can, we can nitpick the McCoy stuff till the cows come home. But the biggest, the, the much bigger thing here is the heart of your order had every opportunity to win this game for you and didn't connect. Yeah. Those are the three names you want. I mean, David Schneider's as hot as anybody in baseball. Vladdy is Vladdy, whatever that means on any given day. And then Danny Jansen is maybe the guy I want at the plate, honestly, in a clutch situation. I think he's so good in those. But it was on a platter. It was right there. And on that Vladdy ground out, too, I, I should give some props to the Nationals' first baseman. That incredible catch as he drifted back across the bag. That was really cool. But Vladdy in that situation hit the ball into the ground. Yeah, it was probably at 500 miles an hour but on the ground again. And that's a, a situation where it is very easy from me sitting in a chair at 10 a.m. the next day to say, hit a ball in the air. And it's very easy to do. I'm, I'm not standing in there seeing a ball blur by me at 100 miles an hour. But that is the situation where you just need that. You don't need a home run. You do not need to hit it into the 500 level. The Blue Jays just need a ball in the air, something hit solid, like that Dalton Varsho fly ball the, the inning prior. That was a perfect example of how to do that job and couldn't get it. You know, we, we have heard it a hundred times now where John Schneider will say correctly, it just comes down to execution. You know, they were in the spots, they had the people, and that's a spot where I think even from a coaching standpoint, it has to be a bit frustrating because there you go. Bottom of the ninth, base is loaded. You've got it exactly how you want it to look to salvage that game and Blake, that last night was the first time it felt like a playoff race, too. That building was loud. It was good. It really felt like a playoff race. You had everything in your favor, and the execution just isn't there. That has to be frustrating for the players, obviously, but frustrating from a coaching standpoint, too, because it was right in front of you. Yeah, and it should be said, look, this Toronto crowd has done its job. They are second in the American League in attendance yeah. right now, even though the all the nice alterations at Rogers Center have actually shrunk the capacity a little bit. Uh, they're second to only the Yankees in average attendance in the American League, uh, even though I'd imagine the Rogers Center just reeked of hot dog burps at that point. They did their job. Oh. They were fired up in those moments. Um, this is a stat from James and T.O. on Twitter. Since the start of June, the Jays in the seventh inning or later with the tying run in running score runners with ah, 
Start of June, uh, the Jays in the seventh inning or later with the tying run in scoring position. The Jays are four for 35. Four for 35 in the last three innings with the tying run in scoring position. It is almost impossible to do that. They haven't achieved a three-run comeback since back before the All-Star break, that series-salvaging extra inning game against the Tigers where they got behind uh, 3-0 and I think won 4-3. That is the last time they they came back. Um, There is... Look, we can do a kind of Matryoshka Russian dolls thing here, Keegan, where we nitpick on the Mason McCoy decision and you you zoom out, you go to the next doll and it's like, okay, well, you shouldn't have been in that situation anyway. Your your big guy should come through in those spots. And then you zoom out next doll. It's, well, you shouldn't be this this far out of a playoff spot and need a must-win game against Washington in August. And you can continue doing that. And these problems have kind of persisted since the very start of the season where this team has missed opportunities and just generally underperformed. They're now three and a half games back with, I think, 29 left to go. How are, like, look, it's it's baseball. They Things could click today and they could go on a little bit of a run here. But they have not done that this year. They have not had a week where they look like the best team in baseball, a month where they look like the best team in baseball. They're just kind of there. They are effectively out of time given how tough this wild card race is. What does this need to look like for you? Like we've used the term urgency a little bit, but what is more urgent than urgent? Exactly. And I'm sure some people listening have been in that relationship where they keep saying, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I promise I'm going to change when, (laughs) and we are 130 plus games into this for the blue Jays. And you've seen a lot of the same. And and that number you mentioned, like four for 35 in in those situations, it's remarkable when we look at numbers like this, and this is something I think I'll only be able to properly appreciate after the season, looking back on it, how many wins are being left out there. Add a few more hits to that. Make that even a 250, 280 average. That's a couple wins. Add in a few more home runs to this team, a team that should be hitting more home runs. That's another few wins on a team that's already very comfortably above 500. It's not a mystery. It's not magic where these wins would come from. They're right there. And that adds to the frustration. It adds to the frustration we both hear from fans, of course. And it's understandable because you get into such a hard spot where if if we were talking about hockey, Blake, I'd say, cool, go fight a guy, <laughs> skate harder, dump it and chase, get the puck in deep. Who cares? Whatever vague words you can throw at it. If this is football, we're saying make a quarterback change, run the ball. In baseball, the Blue Jays are doing the things they should be doing most of the time, 98% of the time. It's just about the results. You can't try harder because then you fail harder. They're trying enough. But like you say, what's more than urgency? What's beyond urgency? And the difficult part about baseball at this point, it's so detail-oriented, is that urgency means a heightened level of focus, a heightened attention to detail, which can be hard to do when you're playing in front of 50,000 people and buzzing at an adrenaline level that I will never know. I will never be on a field with 50,000 yelling people watching me take an at-bat. So calming yourself and having attention to detail in those spots that's the trick. That's the ticket. But like you see with those numbers, hasn't always been there. Uh, here's one more number for you. Jay's hitting 
the worst they have hit as a franchise with the bases loaded this year, a buck 98. Oh. That's, uh, that's, that's rough. Uh, last Bring one for you. Keep... Into those situations. We need a, need yeah. a bases loading hitting coach. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Uh, last one here for you before I, I let you get on with your day. Key and get down to the ballpark for a 3 PM start. Uh, John Schneider answered the first couple questions in his postgame presser last night as we'd expect. But by the end of that, you know, there were follow-ups and I thought you guys all did a good job, you know, not leaving a, a stone unturned in terms of the exact thinking behind some of the decisions. Uh, he seemed not frustrated with you guys by the end, but just a little rattled, maybe started kind of talking in circles a little bit for a guy who usually handles those situations. Even if you don't agree with it, he usually communicates the logic pretty well. Um, did you read anything into, you know, the kind of exasperation that, that Schneider seemed to be feeling? feeling uh, by the end of that presser yesterday yeah and just on a human level that has to be frustrating we're on let's go back to mid-february he's a couple hundred days into me asking him five questions a day <laughs> anybody would be annoyed let's be very clear about that and if i wrote a bad article and i had to answer 20 questions about it probably not happy either so i get that from a human standpoint but that frustration uh, is there and i think we've seen a change in tone from schneider uh, recently as well not a change in message but a change in tone, uh, whoever works the, uh, the bleep button at Sportsnet, hope they're getting a raise recently. They, they are uh, on top of that button, and we've seen a bit more of that come out. But I think that's a good thing. I, I don't think uh, frustration from the manager is a bad thing as long as it's channeled well. And, uh, you know, coming into today, I, I think, uh, you know, maybe we'll see a bit more of that. I don't know what the odds are on ejections and if you can parlay those things. But I'm sure someone out there knows it. And uh, until this turns around, I think you'll see uh, a little more and more of that because this is, uh, you know, as much as coaches try to put on that public-facing uh, persona, like this has to be very frustrating for them as well. Because like we mentioned, there's lots of times where decisions can be questioned. There's also some times where, players are in the right spots and it just doesn't happen. It is uh, going to be an interesting one because you are like you were on Sunday. You're in a spot where you need to just salvage a series win against the team. You're probably hoping to pick up some momentum against. There are more series against lesser teams uh, ahead in Colorado in Oakland and then back home against Kansas city. But uh, I feel like a series loss would be a, uh, Pretty big morale hit here, especially with the style of loss from last night. Keegan Matheson, uh, get down to the ballpark, man. Dig around for us. Give us the Mason McCoy story. And uh, thanks for making the time out this morning. You got it, brother. We'll talk soon. Keegan Matheson of MLB.com, of BlueJays.com. Top five strongest guy I know. I don't know our next guest, but after the next segment, I will call him the number one strongest guy I've ever talked to. The world's strongest Man, he is the 2023 World's Strongest Man competition winner, the first Canadian to ever do that. He is the 2023 Arnold Classic winner. He's only the fourth person to ever do both of those things in the same year. He also threw out the first pitch at a Blue Jays game on the weekend, is a baseball fan, uh, hit some dingers in a charity tournament a little earlier. We'll see. Hey, if you could deadlift a billion pounds, uh, how can that help your baseball game? We'll talk to Mitchell Hooper, the world's strongest man, Barry's own. Next, as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. 
I'm Blake Murphy. Jays lose 5-4 yesterday. They'll try to settle this series down at Rogers Center at 3 p.m. Chris Bassett against Patrick Corbin. There were some injury updates yesterday. Uh, we'll go through them here. Uh, they won't make you feel any better about how things went yesterday. Uh, in addition to Matt Chapman being on the IL with a right middle finger sprain, which we found out Monday, yesterday, the Toronto Blue Jays put Bobichet on the IL with a mild quad strain. They say it's not related to the patellar issue that he was dealing with prior, but uh, we'll ask our next guest who has a couple degrees in the matter if uh, overcompensating or maybe coming back a little too early from a knee thing could lead to a quad thing. In addition to those moves, Brandon Belt, uh, we found out after the game, we assumed during the game because he wasn't used a number of times, we found out after the game that he was a uh, late scratch due to back spasms. There wasn't a sense of whether that is a longer-term thing or a shorter-term thing. That's one where if he were to require an IL stint, the move is very straightforward. Spencer Horwitz is coming up to be the first baseman slash DH uh, on the left-handed hitting side of things. Uh, pretty straightforward move there. Spencer Horwitz would be up already if he had a position and a, and a path to playing time, but he does not. So uh, he awaits an opportunity, and if Brandon Belt were to miss time, that would be that opportunity. You could also get there even if, Belt was just going to miss three or four days. Uh, you do something else to get Horwitz's bat up. But that, that doesn't sound imminent. Uh, Chad Green is going to pitch today. That will likely be his final rehab assignment before he's part of the roster expansion on Friday. Still no update on when Alec Manoa is going to start down with Buffalo. He is not listed as a, a probable. Today, it sounded like from talking to Arden earlier in the week that uh, you know he might not pitch for a little bit still as he works through side sessions and things like that. If you wanted a tiny piece of positivity from yesterday, Ricky Tiedemann went three and two-thirds innings. Didn't go longer than that because of the pitch count. Also subject to a couple unearned runs, the defense behind him. Uh, but three and two-thirds innings. Quick math, that is 11 outs. Ricky Tiedemann struck out all 11 batters uh, for those outs. So at least one thing was going nicely uh, in the Blue Jays organization yesterday. Uh, there was not a lot of offense from their minor league teams, but Tiedemann, as he continues to work his way back up and really try to, you know, muster something out of what's been mostly a lost year around biceps issues. Uh, nice to see him striking out that many batters. Since returning to AA uh, four short starts ago, he has struck out 20, walked seven over nine innings. So pretty good strikeout right there. You'd like the walks to come down a little bit, uh, but we'll continue to keep an eye on his progress down with the minor league team. We'll also next week, uh, whether Doug Fox or Jeff Ponce or some, we will tag in one of our regular prospect people and get a look down uh, on the farm. New Hampshire also has Alan Roden continuing to hit very well. There will be someone up from AAA when the rosters expand on Friday. That's worth a look at where we're anticipating it's uh, it's Nathan Lucas, but we'll see how the next couple days play out. Uh, so while we wait for Mitchell here, um, couple stats from last night's game if you missed them because look there is full disclosure like 40 percent of this job is picking apart manager decisions even whether you agree with them or, or disagree with them um that's that's a big part of this especially if you're you know doing the the games live on the radio or something like that um anyway well we'll get to some of those numbers uh after we will now be joined though and he 
just burst through the door, tore the door off the hinges. Uh, it is the world's strongest man. It is the 2023 world's strongest man champion, the first Canadian to ever do so. It is the 2023 Arnold Classic champion, just the fourth man to do both of those things. In the same year, you can find him at MitchellHooperStrongman.com and on YouTube. That's uh, the world's strongest man. It's Mitchell Hooper. Good morning, Mitchell. How are you, man? Good morning. I'm doing very well. That introduction never gets old. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to work in the Moose nickname somewhere, but it was getting long. That's all. <laughs> uh, before we get into some of the, the strongman stuff and, and the baseball stuff, you threw out the first pitch at the Blue Jays game on the weekend. Uh, congratulations. I saw you post the other day that, that you guys are pregnant. Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, I'm 27 and, and what's happened this year has been mental. We're actually getting married in three days time. So I'm, uh, I'm concerned of what year 28 and onwards has for me. Um, so, I mean, Hey, maybe it, uh, it has a couple more strongman championships for you. So, um, over at Mitchell Hooper, strongman.com and the YouTube channel. Uh, I love the tagline lift heavy, be kind. Uh, and I know you've got some merch to that effect as well. Um, how has that kind of slogan come about and kind of informed what you're trying to do, you know, now that you have the platform of, of a world champion? Well, I just think it's so misinterpreted what someone is who's a strong man or who's really just goes to the gym regularly. I think uh, with my background and my family, I'm particularly sensitive to people who don't regularly exercise and having the awareness that someone who looks like me, who trains like me would probably be a turnoff for those people to stay moving regularly that uh, I want to do everything I can to dissociate myself from that. And uh, it's actually my, my wife-to-be, her, her thing when she really likes someone, she describes them as being very kind. So it's less of a declaration of who I am and more of an aspiration to who I want to be. That's, uh, that's great. That's very well said. Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know your background, you have a human kinetics degree from the University of Guelph. And if anyone picks up a hint of an accent there, you have a master's of clinical exercise. you guys. I don't know if you can hear me. No, I, I can hear you still. You got me? All right. We might have to reconnect uh, with Mitchell there. If you are hearing that hint of an accent, he also has a master's of clinical exercise physiology uh, from the University of Sydney, in addition to the human kinetics degree from University of Guelph. Um, he's from Midhurst, Ontario, though. He's up uh, in the Barry area. Also has a, a physical therapy and kinesiology clinic up there in Barry. As we try to reconnect with him here, we are going to pivot to baseball because he has a, a long athletic background before he got into strongman competitions. He's uh, been a conditioning coach on the basketball side for the KW Titans, and he might have some uh, some tips for us as we uh, you know head into our own off seasons, but also for for things that are nagging the Blue Jays right now, like Bo Bichette's uh, quad strain, like Matt Chapman's finger sprain, like Brandon Belt's. Uh, back spasms. We'll also keep an eye out through the show, uh, see if we get some lineups for today's game. It is a 3 p.m. start down at Rogers Center. Uh, if you're looking ahead at the schedule, um, Sam McKee and Jesse Rubinoff will have you 12 to 2. Show Ali is going to have Jay's talk pregame uh, from 2 to 3. And then Blair and Barker will take over postgame. So 3 p.m. start. Whenever that one wraps up, Blair and Barker will take you uh, to 7 o'clock. So you have lots of opportunity. Um, there are a billion texts in the text line today too so we'll try to sprinkle some of those in uh over the course of the show and while we wait for uh mitchell to be able to reconnect with us here uh joe in mississauga asks one that uh i'm using here because it's a light one and a nice easy uh one to shoot down joe in mississauga asks is josh donaldson signing uh not a bad idea now he was released by the yankees the other day i would say it is worse than a bad idea i he hasn't been good in several years defensively 
or offensively. Um, you know, the bat speed has been going for uh, a little while here. I know he had that burst of like four home runs in five games when he first came off the IL earlier in the year. Um, no, he's he's done as a as a major league caliber player. I think at the third base position, um, you're more willing to give your own internal guys a shot in that spot than you are someone outside the organization. I don't think looking at some of the waived names from yesterday is a bad idea generally, but third base is the one position where I could look at and say definitively, I'd like to give those played up op- those opportunities to guys who are in-house, whether it's David Schneider, Kevin Biggio, Relvis Martinez, Addison Barger, whoever, uh, that's one position where you have enough guys to get a look at. Uh, we've reconnected with Mitchell Hooper here. Um, Mitchell, so you you have a human kinetics background, a clinical exercise physiology background. Um, I know you're, you're a physical therapist with your own kinesiology clinic in Barrie. Um, how much of the, like, what was the decision like for you to start training for strongman competition. This was only your second year competing uh, officially. Um, how much of your education informed the desire to do this and how much of that was vice versa? Hey, I really want to do this and why not ed- get an education that helps? Yeah, well, I played every sport you could think of growing up, baseball, hockey, football, everything. Uh, then when I, I went to do my undergrad, I thought I wanted to work with uh, pro athletes and I thought high performance is where I wanted to go. Uh, but uh, I, I saw a much greater need for public health and for people who who need to tackle issues in a more holistic way. Uh, so movement as medicine became very important to me. Uh, in having that as a professional endeavor, the only way to relate to other people is to be able to go through a similar journey. And since I don't have experience in being inactive and I, I'm not going to do that, I figure I'm just going to climb uh, every mountain that I can. So the first one I did was uh, I ran marathons before I started strength sports to, to feel aerobic training to its maximum. And then I, I just did strength sports as sort of the next thing to experience what it's like to get as strong as you can so that I can relate to old people who I encourage to do that, uh, as well as, say, uh, an overweight person who needs to improve their aerobic fitness. And, hey, why not become the absolute strongest man in the world while I'm on my way? I, I know you also did some work with KW Titans on the conditioning uh, side with them as well. So you you have... Obviously, you you change dramatically what you're doing in the gym to to go down this strongman road. You're throwing out the first pitch at the Blue Jay game the other day. And I know you played baseball. I know you you know you hit some home runs in, in a charity tournament earlier this year, so the swing's still there. Did you worry mechanically about you know throwing a good first pitch with the extra size you now carry? <laughs> uh, I know I can throw a ball, but uh, as I know from competing, the uh, execution of something you're capable of in front of thousands of people <laughs> is a different story. I wasn't really worried because if you throw a bad pitch, you know, everyone, everyone at the game will forget about it in the first five minutes. But uh, we have several people who will be speaking at the wedding who came alongside. And I, I didn't need a bounce first pitch mentioned at the wedding. <laughs> uh, yes, that would make its way into every speech, uh, but, I'd uh, imagine. So you got to do some stuff down around the uh, blue, the Blue Jays. I, I know you chatted with Yusei Kikuchi, uh, chatted yeah. with my colleague Arden Zwelling. Were you, were you impressed at all with Arden's training knowledge? I, I know he he studies this stuff pretty hard from a, you know a hobby level as well. Yeah, and I was impressed with his his level of knowledge about me. One of the most important things for me is that uh, I I decrease the barrier for someone to understand how you get hurt, how you recover, how you progress, and why you might not. Because to me, that's what would make someone disenchanted with the gym. And Arden was able to to rattle off 
several different tips and tricks that I've given from several different videos. So he's, he's right into the studying. So I was very impressed with him. Yeah. He's uh, and he was excited to, to talk to me about it earlier uh, in the week. I've been slacking in that regard, but I know Arden doesn't miss many days, uh, many of his lift days. You say Kikuchi was also a guy who was really eager to talk to you, get your number, maybe connect with you in the off season um, to take this a, a more serious bent, you know, something like, Hey, these, compound lifts that a guy can do in the off season to help a pitcher, whether it's increased velocity or maintain velocity over the course of a whole season, whether it's Kikuchi or someone else. And I know you're focused more on the everyday person than the sports science side, the high performance side, but what can someone with your background and your education, you know, what can you potentially help a pitcher with when it comes to that strength training? Well, look, you have the obvious, the obvious concern around the, uh, the strain that the elbow takes with the kinetic chain, uh, which is, is well handled by people in the Jays organization. Uh, but the thing that people don't realize is that in any rotational sport, which baseball swinging is one, baseball pitching is, is mostly a rotational movement as well. The number one correlator to your, your power to be able to do that is your, your squat strength. And it's very easy to say squat strength and someone just assumes you go in and squat heavy all the time and you get stronger, but it's obviously more complicated than that. Or Everyone would be world's strongest man. But if you can help, say, say I could help you say squat more in a healthy way, it'll make his, his lower body more resilient. But if he was more powerful, there's two elements to that. One of the elements is his maximum pitch velocity would go up. But I think more importantly, he could maintain his pitch velocity at a lower perceived effort, and then accuracy would go up substantially. Huh. So that's that's interesting where, you know, hey, your squat strength relates to your velo, relates to your ability to locate. Um, this is why the Jays have a, a high performance staff, I'm, I'm sure, but they don't let me talk to them. So I'm going to keep picking your brain about it. Um, when it comes to the hitting side, you know, I think uh, something a lot of people think of is, well, why wouldn't this guy add power? And to some of us, you know, uh, Hey, lifting heavy in the gym size equals power. That's obviously not exactly true. Um, what, what would a key be to, you know, a position player adding an element of power without sacrificing, you know, that rotational ability or that bat speed? Well, we, when we talk about power and strength, we have to dissociate the two. So I'm the strongest man in the world. I'm not the most powerful <laughs> man in the world. If you compared me to, say, an Olympic weightlifter, uh, they, they focus heavily on power, which is moving weight very quickly. Uh, now, you take that to the extreme with baseball and a bat, which is comparatively extraordinarily light. And it doesn't take a huge amount of peak strength to move that bat well. Uh, but the stronger you get, the higher... Uh, opportunity you have to express that power in the swing so you would have to then periodize training where you wouldn't want them doing say right now in the thick of the season you wouldn't want them doing super heavy training which is too far away from what they're going to be doing with the bat but say when you start into an off season and i mean baseball players what they've got only maybe three months off season four months is that right Uh, so you, you would want to a solid block of training where you are increasing that peak strength potential, which is also injury protective. And then you go through a transition phase where you go through more power focus. And then that power focus would be able to more easily relate to bat speed. And we actually get into the exact same conversation where if you can swing a bat harder, uh, then you're going to be able to swing it easier in your perceived effort and get the same amount of power out of that is the, the the pitches are throwing the ball so hard all they need is really solid contact and a decent swing and so you need that decent swing you can swing the bat very easy say 
if if we put Yusei out at the plate and said hit a home run, he's probably going to have to swing out of his shoes. But Vlad, with the power that he has, he could probably swing fairly relaxed and, and get the ball out of the park. Okay, I wanted to ask you a couple things on the the possible injury side, the the kinetic chain, the relation here. But but first, the the <laughs> most the most gym related Blue Jays injury right now is Matt Chapman's on the IL because he jammed his finger really bad between a couple of dumbbells on the dumbbell rack. Have you ever done that? What, like, what is your worst gym injury in training? I, I actually literally have one of my fingernails missing because I jammed it between <laughs> two plates. So I know exactly that feeling. It's, it's horrendous. Uh, uh, my worst injury. My worst. I I, I had a back injury that um, had to call the uh, the ambulance to the gym. Had to get taken out on the stretcher. Yeah, which is important. I think for the the everyday person listening to dissociate. The Blue Jays, they might be some of the highest performers in the world at their sport. I might be the strongest man in the world. But to be honest with you, most of us feel terrible most of the time. (laughs) Performance is not health. So it's not not to say that people should aspire to be as strong or as athletic as myself for the Blue Jays. But, um, yeah, I've had many little niggles along the way. I'm going to ask you one here. And, of course, you haven't seen Bobachet's medicals. You haven't talked to him or anything. But generally speaking, uh, a player – you know, comes back from a knee injury, a patella issue. It maybe sounds like he came back a little bit and now he's reporting uh, a quad strain, so some persistent quad soreness. When it comes to how we compensate for potential injuries, um, how related can those things be and what do you have to be aware of as you try to work your way back? Yeah, look, they're, they're massive. And the thing is, we don't exist in a black and white world. And I think a lot of times uh, professional training staffs get too much flack because someone's come back and got injured where all, all we can say is there's a 10% chance that you, you could get re-injured and we either accept that or we don't. And so say, say you've got a knee injury. Well, naturally the knee works and it literally just works to bend and extend. And your quad is what resists the bending and extending. So if you have a knee injury, you take time where you're not extending your knee for a period of time. Naturally your quad is going to decondition. And then if you get back in a little bit too soon, then your quad isn't going to be physically prepared for what you're asking it to do. That being said, if you have an injury, the number one risk factor of, of having an injury is having that injury in the past. So it's just something that, that is persistent. And returning too early is a risk factor. It's not to say he did return too early because these things just, they just happen. They're part of the process. Mm-hmm. They're part of trying to be an athlete, not uh, the healthiest person you could be. Uh, okay, before I let you go here, Mitchell, if you were, you know, there are, there are a lot of people listening. I'm sure some of them hit the gym. I, I'm thinking young athletes in particular. Um, what's kind of the best catch-all a- advice you could give to someone who's training for performance? I guess I, my guess is the first one is get so big and so strong that you don't have to count macros anymore because that makes the diet, <laughs> the diet side of things easier. But I don't know that everyone's going to do that. Um, so, you know, kind of general training advice, what, what would you have? Uh, I would say the two things would be to, to master the fundamentals. So the fundamental movement patterns of life are squat, deadlift, overhead press, push, pull, and carry. If you can do those six things, then you're in a pretty solid spot to be able to do any sport very well. And you actually need to spend substantially less time in quote-unquote sport-specific activities than you think. You, you, you do your sports to be sport-specific. You're in the gym to build a base of strength. For example, you don't need to go in the gym if you're a baseball player and work really, really hard on your rotational power for 12 months a year because squat strength is more correlated to bat speed than rotational power. So that would be one. And number two is track what you're doing week over week. You can't just go into the gym doing whatever you feel like doing on a certain day. You need to be able to make sure that you do 
a, a measured increase for me. I always say two to five percent from one week to the next, but a measured increase where you're not just going to the gym saying, okay, today's chest day and I feel like doing dumbbells this week and uh, barbell next week and overhead press the week after. Uh, spend a period of time doing the same things, master the movement, move on to a similar movement and progress each of those two to five percent a week. And yeah, get big enough that you don't have to count macros. It's just about calories, right? Eventually. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> and then limit all of your external rotation, and then you you lock in when you throw a baseball that you can only throw it in one plane, and then down the middle. That's awesome. <laughs> there you go, uh, Mitchell Hooper. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Keep up all the great work, and uh, have a blast getting married this weekend. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Mitchell Hooper, the world's strongest man. You could check out more from him at mitchellhooperstrongman.com. Mitchell Hooper on Instagram. Mitchell Hooper Strongman on youtube as well he's also got uh, a kinesiology clinic in barry not focused on elite performance athletes focused on everyday people especially older people so uh you can check all of that out he's a blast to follow on instagram even if you're not uh, an everyday gym person and, and i love the tagline of lift heavy be kind i think he also has that tattooed on his uh on his thighs that you can see it there poking out in some of the uh some of the competitions we'll keep an eye on if arden and you say end up getting to work out with mitchell hooper in the offseason we'll of course have arden on here to tell us all about it if he does uh right now though we're going to take a break and we're going to go check in with one of the voices of the toronto blue jays uh ben wagner joins us next and then we'll we'll keep it ben we'll bring in ben clemens of fan graphs to take a look at this bizarro waiver situation from yesterday around baseball uh we'll talk to him around 11 30 ben wagner next as jay's talk plus continues on the sports that radio network and sports at 360 your daily dose of everything nfl it's the fan Checkdown with matt marchese and donovan bennett subscribe and download the show on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, we are joined now from down at Rogers Center. Ben Wagner getting ready to call game three of this set. It's Chris Bassett against Patrick Corbin. Uh, ben, I believe the dome is still closed right now. It, it looks a little overcast out there, but how are you feeling? How's the, uh, how's the energy down at an empty Rogers Center after last night? This is my favorite time to be at the ballpark. Uh, you know, when it's when it's quiet, when the ground screw is just kind of milling around, moving some clay, tapping the mound around home plate, uh, it's a very, very calming, calming experience for me. It's uh, my favorite time to be at the ballpark. I love that bit when they're tamping, when they're using the big steel thing to flatten out the ground. That's my favorite sound down around the uh, <laughs> down around the ballpark. So that's the ambiance. There yeah. is also uh, when the locker room opens up, I'd imagine there will be some sort of energy around what happened last night. Tough loss, 5-4 loss, a lot of things we can nitpick at there. And it just kind of continues this trend of the Blue Jays doing okay, but not doing enough as it pertains to this wild card race, they now sit three and a half back. Uh, how did you feel about last night's game and just kind of this, where this team is at right now? You know, it felt like it was Monday again for the Blue Jays. Honestly, walking out of the ballpark last night, I mean, as you would expect, you, you know, you, you have a clunky series to start off the homestand. You come to the ballpark, disappointed on Monday. 
things were a little quiet, kind of milling around, just not a lot of positive energy in the clubhouse, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of just, you know, nods and grunts instead of saying, hey, happy day, how are you, how are you doing today, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, usually a very pleasant, pleasant September or late August around the Blue Jays, especially where this team is, but last couple of days have certainly had a different kind of atmosphere. Last night, though, of course, very disappointing loss. And into today, questions, I think, are still going to be asked after everything was digested out of the heat of the moment. You know, John Shire usually talks within 10 minutes of the final out. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't waste a lot of time getting in front of the media. And I read the quotes last night. I saw some of the video from his post game. heard Kevin Kiermaier speak at, speak at length about it as well. Uh, I still think this is going to be a topic of conversation with not pinch running Alejandro Kirk, looking at that how it was digested, how it was talked about within the coaches' room in their daily meeting as well. Um, and I don't want to discount Jacob Young making a 300-foot throw <laughs> right on the money, by the way. I don't want to take anything away from him and, and delivering the strike and the play at the plate. But the Blue Jays just have not had a lot of big innings right now. Runs are at a premium, and we know how magnified every win, every loss is. So I think you've got to scratch, fight, and claw for every run that you can pick up Regardless if it's the tying run at second or third, it's a run. It's a run right now, and things haven't broken many ways for the Blue Jays recently. So, uh, you know, and I was up here with Ben Nicholson-Smith on the broadcast thinking, with along with him, like, uh, something must be going, going on here uh, that we don't know about. And in the rhythm of the game, sometimes those things creep up and we don't find out about it. So you think, all right, well, maybe there was more to it. And why Mason McCoy wasn't the pinch runner. And and if you don't want to give up the DH, all right, that's fine. But uh, that's that's a significant run out there. And um, obviously it cost the Blue Jays, who had a terrible that ninth inning with a bases loaded situation and only got one run out of it. And this is, you know, this is what's tough about it is I, I very much love talking about the micro stuff. And I think not pinch running there was was a mistake. And we've talked about that on this show and we'll continue to um and, you know, there's also the element of, well, if McCoy's not going to be used in that situation, what is he even doing on this roster versus uh, someone who might be or someone who has utility in another spot? Um, but there's also the element, too, where they had the bases loaded with nobody out and two, three, four up in the order in the bottom of the ninth, and they, they weren't able to come through. So I guess... You know, I feel similar to the pinch run thing as I did about Sunday's decision with Kevin Biggio's bunt, which is I disagreed with the decision, but there were other opportunities to win the game and, and other opportunities that probably you need to expect to be taken care of more regularly than that minute stuff. You shouldn't be in a position where Kevin Biggio needs to lay down a successful bunt. You shouldn't be in a position where Mason McCoy has an impact on a potential playoff impact game. Um, the fact that the Jays, once again, weren't able to come up in a big spot like that, they're now hitting under 200 with the bases loaded this year, Ben, and they are, I think the stat that I, I read earlier, and I'll look for it here so I, I, I'm correct, four for 35 since June 1st in the last three innings of a game when the tying run is in scoring position. I know that's a wordy split stat, but basically tying run on board late in the game, you're four for your last 35. Um, we can nitpick all the small stuff, and it certainly would have made that game easier to come through with. Uh, we, we would have been going to extra innings uh, yesterday the way it played out. But how much to you is just, man, you got to start having your, your big guys come through in those spots. 
Yeah, you can digest it a number of different ways, right? When you look at it and you can go back in and, and you can point at different points in the season and, and that's where it's glaring, right? That's a date where it becomes extremely skewed. And ultimately, no matter where you start, and last night, bases loaded situation, who you have coming up with Davis Schneider, who's up in the order, batting second yesterday, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and then Danny Jansen, who also, not traditionally this season, a cleanup hitter. But those are the two, three, four batters. Those are the guys that are identified as, all right, we're going to move the, these guys up in the order. This is all a very deep, deep process from the Blue Jays. They look at it when they develop their lineups. What's going to be effective from start to finish? What also might be maximized later in games as well as who then the Nationals could bring out of the bullpen? All this is science. All this is crunched from computers that are steaming through the night and then brought out, presented to John Schneider, and then he makes the lineup using the best data that uh, the Blue Jays can provide him. I mean, this none of this none of this was just like, oh, look, look what happened. Uh, this is certainly something that the Blue Jays had thought about. Uh, this goes also then to the clutch gene, right? I'm a big believer. You want guys that can get out there that can hammer a baseball when the game is on the line. And that is something that has been late game situation for the Blue Jays absent a lot this season when it comes to coming up with these big rallies. So um, I guess the statistic is not surprising uh, when you when you point at it. And last night, I think it only magnifies when you have these 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 situations presented in a pocket that we have all talked about for the last now month, identifying as a softer pocket of play. Cleveland, you know you you had good pitching coming in, but then you looked at Washington, Oakland, Colorado, and then Kansas City as a time where you could really feast. You could take advantage of some less than competitive pitching staffs, you know, with who's here right now and what the larger sample size of the regular season has presented to the Blue Jays, and I think that's why it's such a pendulum between a win and a loss, and last night, unfortunately, swung the other way with a loss. And we'll tee up this game in, in a minute here, but, it, you know, the way you express that, the way the season has gone, would it surprise anyone if Patrick Corbin and, you know, on the last legs of his utility as a major league starter, maybe, who has had huge home run issues his entire career uh, and, you know, an ERA of like five and a half over the last three seasons, would it shock anyone if the Jays can't get a ton of offense? Probably uh, not. So, Ben, most of these problems have come on the offensive side. The Jays rank second in all of baseball in total ERA. They're top five in starter ERA, top five in reliever ERA. Seattle, the only team that can boast better run prevention than the Blue Jays. However, Jose Brio sounded a little frustrated with himself after yesterday's game. Uh, Kevin Gosman has cooled off a little bit here. Chris Bassett, who will start today, has given up four runs in three of his last four or three of his last five starts. Um, all of these guys have still been solid and good, but maybe not quite the same level of elite they'd been earlier in the season. Is this just a, a late season blip? Or are we starting to see maybe a little bit of the cost of having leaned on those guys so heavily run with a four man rotation for a while and things like that a little earlier in the year? You know, I think they kind of got tired. I think they, they needed a breather and the frustration I look at, not necessarily recently, uh, Jose, you know, didn't execute a couple of pitches and they left the ballpark. That that's what really crunched his night. Uh, they were running on fumes in the month of June. That That's where you really saw the most frustration out of a pitching staff that was trying to do everything that they could, and it's not their fault, you know, that there wasn't enough depth in the organization. It wasn't their fault that there 
wasn't enough uh, of an opportunity that in the mind of the front office to go out there and find a deal or find somebody that they could claim off waiver wire, rescue from another league, playing competitively, you know, to get in here and provide the Blue Jays some help. Uh, that's where the biggest frustration that I have ever felt at any point in this season came from towards the tail end of that four-man rotation scenario. And uh, is it a byproduct of the workload? You know what? You can look at the starters. You can also look at some of the relievers that have been maximized to, to lengths that they have never been asked to do, and Eric Swanson is one of those. Uh, but, but, but right now, in terms of Jose Barrios and his frustration, I think it comes down to execution. You know, I mean, he's taken the ball religiously now for five straight years where he's going to match 32 starts, and, and that's what you want. You want the guy in the rotation to go out there consistently and give it. And, and what Brios has done is he's he's kind of gotten in the middle. He was not the extreme that we saw last year where he was really good or had poor outings. Now, he's been so much more consistent. Uh, you know, one thing with Chris Bassett leading into this start today, he's not, a, he's not getting a lot of ground balls recently, mm. which for me, that's, that's more concerning of of a guy that you expected to induce a lot of soft contact, and he's not getting the ground ball percentage that I kind of expected him to have this year. And I think it's a career low when it comes to the ground ball percentage. So there are a lot of things working against the Blue Jays. And, um, you, you know, when things don't go your way, you start to dissect every little thing and you try to point at it to be the answer. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's the lowest ground ball percentage he's had since he had a, a six start cameo back in uh, 2014. Yeah. So this is uh, that's a that's a part of it. And his home run per fly ball rate is up. So allowing more fly balls and more of them are leaving the park. Uh, that's kind of the the case with Patrick Corbin as well, who's always been uh, a high home run guy. Uh, ben, I know that with an afternoon game today, some of the media availability times are. are twisted up so uh, apologies if you don't have an answer on this yet but do we anticipate Brandon Belt's absence to be uh, a multi-game one or, or just a thing yesterday just looking ahead to what this lineup could look like against yes another lefty uh, who Belt hasn't hit particularly well this year but his absence was felt pretty good yesterday yeah, his absence was felt yesterday, and we found out again. You don't know everything that's going on in the dugout, but Sportsnet TV gave us a shot in one of the breaks of Jose Ministral leaning in and chatting with John Schneider. And that, now that we learn after the game, Brandon Belt unavailable, that's probably the moment that John Schneider learned that Brandon Belt was not going to be available on the fly, right? And Clubhouse won't open for another 30 minutes. That's when we'll get a better feel from or hopefully Brandon Belt. You know, that's the that's the, the benefit of being in the clubhouse where you can go up and you can ask these guys these situations about what happened, where he felt it, you know, how it all unfolded and what is availability, if it is a wait and see, or if he woke up and popped out of bed this morning and felt good to go. Um, so we wait and see, you know, and we're going to hear from John Schneider later on today as well before the 3 o'clock first pitch. So uh, I don't have the absolute definitive answer on that quite yet. Uh, so obviously with Matt Chapman and Boba shutdown, we anticipate David Schneider playing pretty much every day. Sounds like Ernie Clement's going to get a, a good little shot here at playing time. Uh, I think the obvious Brandon Belt move, if he required more time down, Spencer Horwitz, the only reason he's not up is that there's no room for him to play, and, and Brandon Belt would resolve that short term. Uh, is that how you see the, the playing time mostly say, shaking out here? Schneider pretty much every day. Clement with the lion's share of the shortstop time? 
Yeah, I do. I, I think they wanted to get Ernie up here. They knew they had the insurance policy to back up uh, the shortstop position, and Ernie spent a lot of time recently playing at shortstop. And I, I talked with people within the organization ahead of the move, and they felt Ernie playing more than what he had ever been exposed to in his, in his shuttle run here between Buffalo <laughs> and the big leagues over the course of the season, if given an opportunity, would find more consistency. Uh, he's a better player when he is in the lineup and getting frequent at-bats. And I think that, that goes to say for a lot of guys, uh, the more that they play, the more comfortable they are. But they really feel that Ernie getting a long run here in the absence of Bo is going to be fine. And he's going to get a large rep at shortstop. He's really good. He's athletic. He's wiry. He's strong. He's got a good enough arm. He actually moves better uh, talking with a lot of people than Santiago Espinal. And that's why I think Ernie will win the, the huge chunk of playing time at shortstop. And then Davis has the, the ability. You know, he was drafted as a third baseman, really comfortable over at third base. You can shift him around and play at second base. And and then into the outfield, too, if you want win on the diamond. So the Blue Jays right now are, are super utility built. Hmm. Um, much more, and I'm not saying that the talent is the same, but we felt a lot of the super utility for the Blue Jays used in the 2018, 2019, and even in the early phases of 2021. Um, but thankfully, that utility is still there, that versatility right now as you're trying to replace an elite defender at Matt Chapman over at third base and the best hitter in the American League and a guy that had played an extremely solid shortstop for the Blue Jays in Bo Bichette. Uh, here is a Ernie Clement question for you, Ben. You spent a lot of time in Buffalo, but I know you're an, Indi- <laughs> you're an Indiana guy initially. Ha- were you converted to the Bills? Are you still a Colts guy? Are you the rogue Indiana uh, Bengals fan? Where, where, <laughs> do you, where do you and Ernie uh, come down on the football side? Listen, I spent a lot of time in western New York, and let me tell you this. It doesn't matter the, the time of the calendar. When the Bills win, people in western New York are happier. That's the bottom line here. That is the bottom line. So when I heard Ernie Clement's walk-up music, the shout song that the Bills kind of morphed into their own version, this isn't the version that plays in the ballpark. But I asked Ernie about it, and I also asked him about a recent um, you know, big sporting news event that happened in Buffalo as well, being a Rochester guy, and that's only about an hour away from where the Bills play. I said, hey, how deeply rooted are you in Buffalo sports? And he said, he's all in. He grew up going to Amherst games. That's the the minor league team of the Buffalo Sabres. He was a lifelong Sabres fan. He grew up listening to Rick Jenneret. Every night, Rick Jenneret, somewhere, either on TV or on radio, was in his house growing up. And when Rick Jenneret passed away, uh, the Bisons wore their hockey jerseys that night and had an RJ inked behind the plate as a tribute to Rick Jenneret, the longtime play-by-play voice. So as Ernie was walking up to the plate that night, he paused before he got into the batter's box, and he gave a bat tap right in the middle of the RJ. So this is how deep his sport passion runs for Buffalo teams, let alone, I mean, a guy that clearly is a massive Bills fan. And I chatted with, uh, with Ernie the other day, and I think, it must have been Hazel, right, doing a report mm-hmm. on it as well last night because I saw the pictures of Ernie, and we were talking about tailgating and how much fun he has with his friends and his family around the Bills games too. So uh, trust me, Western New York and Ernie Clement specifically, happier 
when the Buffalo teams do better. Yeah, uh, everyone around here happier if the Blue Jays can do a little bit better here. Um, ben, I, I, look, there was a ton of negativity yesterday, a ton of negativity Sunday, uh, and that's warranted. The Jays are three and a half games back. It's the lowest their playoff odds have been at Fangraphs all season long. Um, but, you know, lost maybe within that, I thought another tremendous job last night in saving the bullpen and keeping today's chance to win the series uh, very much alive with, with a very well-rested bullpen came down to Bowden Francis. He's now at 31 innings on the year. A lot of those in bulk situations and mop-up situations, save the bullpen situations. Um, how much has he, uh, obviously the organization was high enough on him coming into this year, but how much has he won fans to an even greater degree within the Toronto Blue Jays organization with what he's been able to do helping save this bullpen at times this year. This is huge. This is a role that you were worried about at the beginning of the season where the Blue Jays broke camp not having a traditional long man. That's why at the end of spring training, they stretched out Trevor Richards. They didn't know. They didn't know because uh, Zach Thompson was in the organization. They thought he would compete for the rotation. Uh, Drew Hutchison was back in the rotation. Casey Lawrence was here. Nobody had an opportunity to take um, or nobody took advantage of the opportunity that they had to either be a long man or work themselves into the conversation and have success as a fill-in starter if needed. Bowden Francis has gotten better over the course of the year. And this goes all the way back to Bowden figuring it out on his own. When he went to winter ball last year, this was his own onus. And he went into uh, a study about what he felt he could do. He talked to a lot of pitchers. He got a lot more innings. He added some velocity. And he really worked on his curveball. And this is a credit to Bowden Francis just saying, you know what, I've got to be different. I've got to come out here and reinvent myself a little bit at this stage in my career. And the Blue Jays did. They identified some things. That's why you go out and you get a guy in a trade. That was the Rowdy Telez deal with Trevor Richards coming over from Milwaukee, right? So there were things that the Blue Jays certainly liked. But Bowden Francis took it to the next level. He took it deeper and, and really took advantage of an opportunity over the course of the offseason got to spring training, we saw the returns of it, and you wondered if it would play, and he went out there, and he became a better pitcher in the big leagues. He's doing this in the big leagues. He's becoming a better option for the Blue Jays in that long man role, and I said this on the air last night. Not only is Bowden Francis doing this in where the Blue Jays need him the most in this season, he's pitching himself right now into an open audition for the rotation next year. Well, and hey, we don't know what's going to happen with Alec Manoa. We know five pitchers are under contract. If you you include Manoa in that, reuse a free agent. But yeah, you're going to want to go into next season with more starting pitching depth than you started uh, this year. And hey, the the best way to get in that conversation is never walk anybody. Pretty good, pretty good in that regard for Bowden Francis. Uh, ben, before I let you go here, uh, 18 and 11 the rest of the way gets the Blue Jays to 90 wins. They're three and a half back in the wild card and an extra team to jump in there. 18, 11 to 90 wins. Is that enough? I don't think 90 wins is going to be enough. I really don't. The The one pocket that I've identified is that head-to-head -head mm -hmm. against the Texas Rangers. It's going to be the biggest four games of the Blue Jays' season because it can impact the wild card directly in a team that's in the race. When the Rangers roll in here on September the 11th through the 14th, that's a four-game window, and then the Rays will roll in here with the last 12 games split evenly between Tampa Bay and the New York Yankees. Uh, I think the direction where this thing is headed for the Blue Jays is going to come down to that four-game window where they have to battle the Texas Rangers. Um, if they if they do what they're supposed to do uh, on the road trip through Colorado and Oakland, too. You know, these are trap series, right? 
it should be pitching that this lineup takes advantage of. Um, I just don't think. I think it's got to be better than the 18 and 11 over the last 29 games of the regular season. I really, really think it's going to take a couple of more wins for whoever is in that wild card race, and hopefully the Blue Jays can skew that and go, you know, to 20 and nine versus it. But that that also would be the hottest stretch of baseball that the Blue Jays have played by far at this point in the year. But you're going to have to do it to get in. Yeah, by, by far the hottest stretch they, they would have played. So those games are uh, September 11th to September 14th down at Rogers Center. It'll be a massive, massive series. Massive one today. Ben Wagner, you'll be on the call on the Sports Radio Network with Ben Nicholson-Smith. Thank you for taking the time out this morning. Have a great call. Thank you, Blake. My pleasure. Ben Wagner, voice of the Toronto Blue Jays on the Sportsnet Radio Network. He'll be with BNS for this series. I believe it's Chris LaRue with him for uh, the weekend West Coast road trip. Three at Colorado, three at Oakland before the Jays return home for Kansas City. And then it's that four set with Texas. Maybe the stretch run schedule looks a little different, uh, feels a little different now that the Yankees are are doing what the Yankees are doing in the standings. Maybe they don't seem like they'll be as competitive, uh, but guess what? That's probably a Yankees team that wants to play spoiler. uh, And Hey, those Rays games at one point, it looked like, well, maybe the Rays will be leading the division by so far that their foot's off the gas. Ah, They're still fighting for the division there. They're not quite, they're far back, but they're not quite, so far back that those games won't matter to them. Um, a scenario where the the last three don't matter a ton because they they can win the division. They've locked up wild card one, but also there's an element of do you want to spoil? Do you want to you know knock the Blue Jays out of a playoff spot and things like that? Uh, there are no let ups in the schedule once you get back here for Texas. You absolutely, absolutely have to take advantage of today's game against Washington against Patrick Corbin, who is just, you know, I, I respect the hell out of guys who are able to eat a ton of innings and help a rebuilding team, you know, not have to rush your prospects up, not expose guys before they're ready, not burn service time. There is huge value in guys like Patrick Corbin, Jordan Lyles, Scott Feldman back in the day. Uh, there's real, real value there, but a team like the Toronto Blue Jays should be looking at this day three of getting deep into a Washington bullpen as well. This should be an offense day. And we've said that too often when it didn't come through. Jays have to be looking at that. They certainly have to be looking at Colorado, Oakland and Kansas city as an opportunity to, Hey, if 18, 11 is not going to be enough. I'm not saying you got to win 10 in a row there, but five and five, isn't going to do it. You have uh, you know, each loss, I guess is one you have squandered. You you've got say 10, 10 losses allotted the rest of the way. Even that might be generous. Uh, you don't want to be burning them on Washington, Colorado, Oakland, and Kansas city. The other element of this playoff race, some of the teams around you could get stronger. Now the trade deadline is well past us. But a whole bunch of players were placed on waivers yesterday. The reason being that they'll clear waivers and or be claimed by Thursday, which is the deadline to be added to the 40-man roster to maintain playoff eligibility. There is a large handful of interesting players now out on waivers. And the way the waiver process works is it's reverse order of winning percentage, just straight up, but we can assume, I think, that most of the teams that are out of the playoffs are not going to claim these guys and pay the one-sixth of their salaries remaining uh, just to do it. It's going to be playoff teams claiming these guys. There's some interesting game theory going on. There's also an interesting underlying why teams are doing this, especially a team like the Angels that put five or six guys on waivers. Um, There is a competitive balance tax element. There is a compensation for Shohei Otani element. There's just the raw capitalism, uh, save a couple million bucks element. Is that 
the right thing? Should we go back to the waiver trade system so it's a little more balanced? Uh, I don't really know. After the break, we're going to talk to Ben Clemens about it. Uh, ben Clemens of Fangrass wrote that up. So did our, our pal John Becker uh, did a, a Q&A over there about how this all works mechanically and why. Um, ben Clemens breaking down who these guys are, what value they may still have. Don't know that more than maybe one of those names is a, a natural fit with where the Blue Jays are right now. But you also have to consider playing defense against some of the teams around you because the Blue Jays, by nature of being out of a playoff spot right now, would have a waiver priority over any of the AL playoff teams except for Minnesota. Uh, we'll talk to Ben Clements about all of that as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a song called Hard Times. And uh, yeah, to go full American Dream Dusty Roads here. Hard Times, Daddy. Hard Times is uh, three and a half games back of a wild card spot. Your playoff odds at Fangraphs dipping below 40% for the first time this season. Maybe there's help out there on the waiver wire. Are you surprised to hear us talk about potential roster moves around baseball here on August 30th? Uh, me too a little bit, but teams are getting creative. Teams are getting aggressive with the rules that exist. Ben Clemens of Fangraphs joins us now to help us make heads or tails of it. Ben, good morning, buddy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Blake? Uh, I'm good. Uh, so you write a piece at Fangrass last night, free Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez and Matt Moore and dot, 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 dot. Uh, I know you already burned the Arrested Development. Uh, we made the fire too real. We're having a fire sale headline. Uh, did you, I, I know we all know the rules and we know a little bit of this happens, but were you surprised at the level of aggression around baseball by some non-contenders to, to trim a little bit of salary here? Yeah, I was, and I think a lot of people around baseball were too. There's There's been kind of an unspoken or unwritten rule about this that you can get rid of a guy or two. You know, Elvis Andrews last year is the example that I always think of just because he went to the White Sox and was the best player in the White Sox down the stretch, and they actually had a run at a playoff uh, berth. I mean, Gale Central was very bad, so that made maybe neutral observers notice less, but he just, the A's just said, we don't want to pay you. We will give you up for no compensation. And he went and like led a playoff charge. So that happens. Like every year there's, there's a guy like that. There's one or two. Justin Verlander got traded, traded when they were waiver trades. But that happens usually for one or two guys. And the Yankees put Harrison Bader on waivers. And, you know, like that's a pretty good player. I, I don't know how much worse he is than Kevin Kiermeyer. And that feels kind of unfair. That guy can just be on waivers but it's usually one or two guys. The angels just, uh, everyone like has a little bit of chill and the angels just had no chill. They were just like, here's everyone. We don't need any of these guys. They're all going to some playoff race. Let's get out of here. And I think that's, what's unprecedented about this. Most times teams have a little, uh, a little restraint and the angels just, just don't. And it's a quick turnaround for the Angels being very aggressive in the lead up to the trade deadline, deciding not to trade Shohei Otani, pushing prospects from one of the worst systems in baseball onto the table to, to get these reinforcements, then turning around and waving them. For anyone who doesn't know, um, what happens 
with waivers is if these players get claimed, uh, the new team is on the hook for the salary. So one sixth of the season is remaining as of Friday. So exactly one sixth of the salary. You are saving money there as well. But Ben, there is also a trickle down effect for the angels here, because if enough of these guys get claimed, they can get beneath the competitive balance tax line, which would mean they get a better pick if, and when Shohei Otani leaves. Do you think that the league might, look a little closer at, at this particular CBT loophole in future years? Um, yeah, I do, but I don't think the angels will really be the precipitating reason why I think someone will eventually do something more ridiculous and that that will, that will tip them over the line, but wave Shohei then I don't. Yeah. Right. Like that's not going to happen, but I think that, Something like that, where a, a marketable superstar changes hands for free to a random team during a playoff race, might would be a big deal to get baseball to look at this. I don't think the, anyone's that upset about the Angels getting a little more when they lose Otani. Like everyone just feels bad for them, I think. And if they get an extra draft pick through some through some waiver maneuvers, I don't. Th- this is a little bit different than. I don't know, like the Astros cheating scandal. This is just so many levels removed. I think there's not that much outrage uh, at the like team personnel level around like, let's punish the angels for this. From a preference standpoint, as someone who loves the sport and writes about the sport and does transaction analysis and things like that. Um, I don't know. What do you, do you, what do you prefer between this and the previously existing waiver trade deadline where guys could be put onto waivers and claimed, and then a trade would work out or, or be revoked off of waivers, which, which system do you prefer now that we're a couple years into this, uh, no post trade deadline trade scenario. In the- so I'm stealing this from a, from a friend of mine, uh, a team employee. So I can't say his name. Otherwise I would, uh, I like this, but I don't like, this is very fun. I'm going to be pretty excited to see who gets all these guys because kind of the, like, don't you like auctions? Don't you like not knowing who's going to get someone? (laughs) It's kind of more fun that way than like, Oh, this team has put in a waiver claim and so they're going to negotiate a trade for a few days. Like I'm kind of excited to see where all these players end up because I was looking at it and I think there are like 13 or 14 possible destinations for these guys. Never mind the permutations of like who goes where and, you know, if you have the 10th best waiver pick, do you claim them all? Because you know you're going to miss on a bunch. But, like, what if you get them all? Do you have space for them all? There's a lot of interesting kind of game theory questions there. And, that's and so, a- as a one-off, I love this. <laughs> so that's exactly where I was going to go with this. Year? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the game theory element of this is so for anyone who doesn't know the, it works reverse standings and and we can write off the non-playoff teams, non-contending teams, because why would you take a guy on who's an expiring contract just to pay him that money? I I don't really see the value in it. Um, But once you get to teams that are, you know, we'll use the Red Sox as a cutoff six and a half games out of the playoff race, they can start making a claim on guys, but you can't, Claim You can claim all of them, but if you get them all, you have to clear the 40-man space. You can't do a – you can't DFA a guy and then add the new guy and then DFA him and then add the next new guy. If you got 10 of them, yeah. you'd have to clear 10 DFAs or 10 40-man spots. So there are really interesting – trigger points and each team's going to have to sit down very carefully and weigh which of these guys they want, because you don't want to claim a bunch of them. You also have to 
consider, you know, let's put a, let's think of a team in a blue Jays situation, for example, where they're three and a half games out. They have one of the best bullpens in baseball, but Hey, the team you're chasing the Texas Rangers desperately needs bullpen arms. Do you put a defensive claim in on Reynaldo Lopez or Matt Moore to keep Texas from getting them? These are the things these teams have to uh, consider now before any of those considerations, they have to consider, can any of these guys actually help them win? And Ben, when you survey this group of players, um, who who is kind of front of mind for you for the guy or, or the couple of guys who could most help a team down the stretch here? Yeah, it's basically two people and maybe three if you stretch for me. So the best pitcher, I think it's Reynaldo Lopez. And he was an awesome reliever last year. You have like a bumpy start of the year with the White Sox, but relievers are really hard to evaluate in like half season samples. He's been awesome on the Angels. He looks really good. You watch this guy pitch, you're like, yeah, okay, he he has like the electric reliever stuff and not terrible command issues. I think he's just not going to get very far. The first team that thinks they have a realistic chance of making the playoffs should take him. He's making the least money of this group. He's probably the best player thing and just just an easy one there. Um Matt Moore is second for me, and he might be first if you don't have a good lefty reliever because he's just very consistent at what he does, which is be a reliable left-handed arm out of your bullpen that will be able to get guys out. And so, again, that's like that, that's a pretty proven commodity in baseball. Everyone could use one of those. And so those two, just like, like everyone needs bullpen arms, and a lot of people need lefty bullpen arms. Past that... Lucas Giolito is interesting if you don't have enough pitching, but I'm actually going to push back on your, why would you claim a guy if you can't make the playoffs for Giolito specifically? Because there are, there's a strange amount of teams who think they'll be good next year. Aren't good this year and need pitching like the Cardinals and Mets spring to mind. They just don't have a pitching staff for next year. And if I'm those guys, I might pay Giolito the you know million dollars or whatever to have him come in and meet the coaches and see if he's a fit because they, they should be trying to sign him. Huh, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting take on it. And I haven't looked at Giolito's, you know, contract. Well, I, I know he's a, an expiring contract, but you know, the compensation elements uh, yeah. and things like that qualifying offers. Um, but yeah, I, that's an interesting uh, one that I hadn't perspective. Uh, hadn't really considered the value of just getting a guy in the door and having him feel things out. Um, so the other kind of, group of players and Carlos Carrasco and Dominic Leone are, are out there as well. But those guys are, are a clear couple of tiers below Giolito Moore and Lopez. Um, there are yeah. a trio of right-handed hitting outfielders in Hunter Renfro, Randall Gritchick and Harrison Bader um, Bader and Gritchick both have enormous platoon splits where they can't hit righties at all. They've hit lefties pretty well. Bader, obviously a plus defender. Gritchick may be less. So now Renfro still has a, a decent arm, but you know, hasn't really hit righties or lefties well this year. I bring those three up, not because either of them seems like a complete game changer, but we heard a lot coming out of the trade deadline that the market for right-handed hitting fourth outfielder types was not as nice as a lot of buyers would have liked. There are a handful of teams who really feel like they could use a guy like that, a team like the Phillies, for example. Um, Do you anticipate those three guys finding homes, even if they're, you know, not super overwhelming for, for how they change how a 26 man looks. Yeah. I think Bader particularly just won't have any trouble finding a place because the defensive outfielder is even more useful in the playoffs. Uh, he's just like, if nothing else, he's a great defensive substitution. 
And if your great defensive substitution can also hit lefties pretty well, that's a nice upgrade. I mean, I live in San Francisco. The Giants make a living out of stretching guys like this in the regular season. And oh, it just plays up in the in the playoffs. I think he is going to be a, like a hot ticket. I'd, I'd be very surprised if he gets to like the top teams because I think a lot of teams should want that skill set. The only reason not to is if you already have a great defensive center fielder. It's just like, it's valuable. If your fourth outfielder is a, a like a plus or even plus plus center fielder, that's good. It just, just makes everything work a little better. Um, past that, yeah, I don't know. Um, I had, I luckily have Dan Zimborski on the payroll as it were, and I had him mm-hmm. basically plug these guys into different teams and Renfro and Gritchick just make no difference. They're even to bad teams. Like we use the Marlins who are running out abysmal lineups, abysmal outfielders, guys where you'd be like, really this, like this is the major leagues. This is a playoff contending team with good players. They, they have some shockingly bad lineups at times and it doesn't even move the needle much for them. I think that teams are pretty sold on Renfro long-term being a, a good hitter of lefties. That's kind of his career skill set. And yeah, he's having a down year, but eh, I think teams might take a shot. And like you said, he still has some defensive value because he has a huge arm in right field. Grichuk, man, I don't know. He's very cheap because like a lot of his salary is being covered by the Rockies and a lot has already just wound down. It wasn't that much in the first place. Jay's covering some of it too, by the way. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't realize it went that far back. Yeah. It's uh. but the point is as a result of all these pay downs, it doesn't cost much, but I mean, the Jays are a great example. Teams with playoff aspirations usually don't have space for Randall Grichik. And <laughs> I, think, I think that's that's kind of the issue here. I think that's, again, why the pitchers are more interesting. It, there's always a spot for a pitcher. But the fourth outfielder types are not quite like that. And particularly, like you said, if they're righties and don't have some carrying skill. Okay, so as of your writing last night, there were 16 teams that had at least a 10% shot at making the playoffs in the latest Fangraphs playoff odds. Let's assume there is the Giolito component of maybe one of those, te- a team that's not in that group um, places a claim on a Giolito type to, to get him in the door. But um, with, the, with the exception of that, let's say those 16 teams are the teams we're looking at here for these guys uh, who are available. When you factor in budgets, when you factor in what teams look like when you factor in this idea of playing defense to keep them away from a team you might be chasing or might run into in the uh, in the postseason, which team are you most fascinated to see how this shakes out for over the next, I don't know what, 36 hours? I'm going to cheat a little again right away. And okay. the Padres didn't make my cutoff, but I'm interested. I think okay. they're actually, in, unless they win their next two games, I think they're not going to claim these guys and probably even then they won't. Like, Look, I get that they really want to make the playoffs and they're doing a big push and they've been doing a big push for years, but they're like way below 500. It's not <laughs> close. It's not like they're they're nearby. Like we have them at 2% chance to make the playoffs. I think they're out. They're nine games below. It's, it's late August. Past that, I think the most interesting teams are the NL Central and then the AL Central. And the reason for that is just because they're going to have priority first. Like they're <laughs> bad. The, the winning records in those divisions aren't good. And... You know, the Reds didn't do anything at the deadline and they don't have good pitching and they've fallen back in the race because they don't have good pitching. And if I were them, I'd be claiming Giolito and Lopez and more and just saying, eh, like, look, there's, there's no scenario where we end up with all three and are sad. And if any of them gets to us, great. So if I were them, I'd be claiming those three. I, I think 
you can probably make the same argument for the Cubs. It's not quite so clear. And the Brewers, the Brewers just do this as a job, right? Like <laughs> they, they find relievers for less than you'd expect them to cost in money or compensation or trade compensation, whatever. Like they're, they're obviously in on these guys if it gets to them. I think the Guardians have fallen far enough out of the race that it's just not interesting. And so then it just gets to the question of like, do the Twins just want to pick up some relievers for the playoffs? Again, I would like, I just think that's smart business. You don't, you can't get players like this. The twins would have been interested in trading for Reynaldo Lopez for free at the end of July. So why wouldn't they be interested in getting him for free now? The money is just like not that big of a deal. Uh, so I honestly kind of think this won't affect the, the AL wildcard race and it won't affect the NL wildcard race much. I don't think because the players are just too attractive. Like, the bad division leaders are going to want them. And just anyone with any chance at making the playoffs is going to want a lot of them. And so, yeah, I just don't, I don't think it's going to be a situation. Like I had Dan look at what would happen if the Orioles got all three, <laughs> just as a, like, what's the absolute nightmare scenario for baseball? Like this game is illegitimate. How could this be happening? And yeah, it's like, it would really help them because their bullpen is looking a little shaky, but the Felix Batista heard, but this is not going to happen. Like it's, no one's getting all three of these guys unless the team that gets all three is bad and then no one will care. So I think it's, it's kind of a, like an overblown mountain out of a molehill kind of deal. The only thing that worries me in terms of like, is this a bad trend long-term, which is yeah, like would have been an easy thing to write an article about. Maybe I'm missing out. Uh, the only thing that worries me is if teams start doing this every year, I'm going to get really tired of covering it. Yeah, I uh, this would be, it, you know, the NBA runs into this after the trade deadline every year where some guys get put, yeah. you know, and nobody ever claims anyone. They just sign for the minimum after. Um, now, with the, the playoff eligibility cutoff here in, in baseball is a little different than basketball. Basketball, you don't have, you just have to be on a roster in time, or sorry, you have to be off an opposing roster in time rather than be on your new roster in time. So a little different there, but yeah, it's something the NBA's run into and tried to legislate uh, out lightly over the years as well. Uh, ben Clements, thanks so much for taking the time out. Hope you don't have to write about it a ton every year, but very much enjoyed you getting to write about it this year. Uh, thanks. Good talking to you as always. Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Make sure you head over to Fangraphs. Check that piece out. He also had a piece uh, breaking down the Rangers' struggles. We didn't have time to get into it with him here. But uh, if you are a Toronto Blue Jays fan looking up at that Texas Rangers team, a helpful read there as well. Um, and then John Becker also had a, a Q&A up at Fangraphs of kind of how does all this waiver stuff work mechanically? Why is it happening? Uh, what does it mean? Kind of stuff. A little bit more detail on the Los Angeles Angels element of that as well. Uh, so make sure to go check those pieces out. Jays getting underway. Three o'clock. Chris Bassett, Patrick Corbin. Here is your Toronto Blue Jays lineup. And uh, yeah, you're going to feel a way about it. Uh, George Springer is in the DH spot and leading off. Davis Schneider in the two hole. Once again, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Whit Merrifield hitting cleanup, playing left. Alejandro Kirk in the five spot. Dalton Varsho in center, hitting sixth. Uh, a reminder that while Varsho is a lefty, He's hit lefties pretty well this year. Not huge platoon splits there. Uh, Ernie Clement hits seventh and plays short. Santiago Aspinall hits eighth and plays third. It's because David Schneider is at second. And Kevin Biggio is the second lefty in the lineup playing right field today. So that's how the lineup against the lefty. Para lefties in there. Brandon Belt uh, told Hazel May, based on her tweets pregame, that he doesn't expect to miss much time with this. He might not have been starting this game anyway, lefty on lefty. Uh, we'll hear in a little bit if he is pinch hit, uh, if he's available as a pinch hitter 
in this one. Um, Mason McCoy, obviously not in the lineup either. Danny Jansen get an off day after catching an awful lot lately. Uh, Sam McKee and Jesse Rubinoff are coming up for you next. As a reminder, with the schedule, with the Jays at 3 p.m., Show Ali has Jays talk for you pregame. Two to three, Blair and Barkle tag in for Jay's talk post game. Whenever that game ends, they'll take you through to seven o'clock as they always do. Uh, thanks to Ben Clemens and Ben Wagner for coming on. Thanks to Keegan Matheson for coming on earlier. Thanks to Mitchell Hooper, the world's strongest man. That was a uh, that was a fun one. Thanks to uh, Nick Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Uh, we'll be back with you 10 a.m. tomorrow, hopefully talking about uh, a better game where the game notes on my laptop in front of me don't have so many things highlighted in bad colors instead of the good colors. Uh, we'll see how that goes. The Jays desperately need to start winning some games. 18-11 from here, get some 90 wins. Might not be enough. Got to start today against Patrick Corbin. I uh, will talk to you tomorrow.